Welcome to JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigel and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. Hi, this is Ellie. This week on Pop Parenting, Avram and I open with a discussion about Bell Let's Talk Day. We're going to talk about mental health and wellness and how to understand this from a more holistic viewpoint. We also get into the movie My Cousin Vinny with Joe Pesci and Marisa Tomei. We delve into a fused family dynamic where no one knows who they are and ask the question, should the person who cares the most really be the one to solve the problem? Okay. Here we go. Welcome back, everyone. Um, yeah, so today is uh, Bell Let's Talk Mental Health Day. Um, I do always think, you know, my mother always said, I would rather you call me 364 days of the year than only on Mother's Day. So I always feel like the Let's Talk Day, it's great. It's a good thing to like remind people um, to think about mental health, but um, I do also think it should be something like you do every day. Um, what do you think? What's, what's, let's say a few things about the mental health thing. You wanted to mention a few things, Avram. Where should we start today? Oh my God. I, I, you know, it's not funny, Ellie. Sometimes you throw me a bone on these podcasts and I can feel my... Um... <laughs> Uh, I don't know what neurochemicals, but I could feel something bubbling up and I get hyper and, and then my, my thinking is all, all over the place. The bell, the bell let's talk thing has always been a problem for me. I've been vocal about this online. I've gotten pushback from colleagues of mine. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, you know, sometimes a well-meaning effort can still produce a, a, a long-term, uh, what I would say, problematic results. So just okay. because you're doing something from a good place, does, and I, I would even question that sometimes. You see, here's the thing. I, I remember when I was in commerce, my first degree was in marketing. And what you learn in marketing or in business school um, is that businesses are there to make a profit. Now, I know this might sound shocking to people when you say this out loud. <laughs> like, really? Businesses are there? To yes, but businesses are there to make a profit. Nonprofits are there to raise money. They, they need to raise money either through grants or through fundraising. Otherwise, you cannot operate your thing, whatever the thing is. It could be a cancer ward. You could be making dolls for Mattel. You can't make your thing unless you make money. And so what happens with companies is that doing social good is good for the bottom line so long as you pick the thing that is in vogue. And that's what I've always thought was um, uh, not principled often about corporate talk around these things. Mm -hmm. Now, I am not picking on Bill. I want to be clear. I think it is good that the society in general sees the idea of um, uh, how, you know, whatever, we're going to talk about this mental health thing, but I think it's good that we, we understand that a broken leg is a broken leg and a serious depression is a serious depression and they can right. both both be debilitating in your life. When yeah. There was a time, Ellie, and, and we're old enough to remember this, where if you said you're anxious, people would go, ooh, like you're, you know, if you had a panic attack, they, they'd roll their eyes. We're yeah, no longer just, in like, that time. hand you a bourbon and tell you to go like, you know, chill. <laughs> yeah. And, and by, by the way, we're also probably old enough to know, and this isn't true for all cultures because, you know, growing up in the Jewish community, therapy was a big thing. Like I, I, mm -hmm. I can't recall anyone ever saying, you're going to go see a therapist? What's wrong with you? But I work with clients in my office um, who are from other communities, specifically, interestingly enough, in Saudi Arabia. Um, I have some clients who are from Saudi Arabia. And th they say, and this is similar in the Hasidic community, if, if, you're, if it's known in your community that you're seeing a therapist, it impacts the marriage potential of your siblings, which is interesting yeah. because it's the same thing sort of in the Hasidic community, which produces a tremendous amount of pressure for people to take care of themselves emotionally and psychologically if there's a stigma around this. So I think Bell is doing good stuff there. Where I have a problem with this is the slicing and dicing. So here's what we're going to talk about this, Ellie, because this is coming up a lot with the kids in school yeah. and this idea that 
the kids being out of school is producing a mental health crisis or the kids aren't mentally well. Um, I think this is not just uh, a problem in terms of identifying what exactly is the problem, right. by the way, but I think it's also uh, uh, missed in terms of um, what actually is going on here with, with this thing. So for example, Ellie, you and I have talked about this before. Pre-COVID, uh, the research on campuses across North America is that anxiety was going through the roof. Pre-COVID. Right. Yeah, Pre -COVID. yeah, we were already in a mental health crisis, so to speak, in terms of the um, services being overwhelmed, schools being overwhelmed, campuses being overwhelmed, like in terms of the amount of kids who are on medication, in terms of... Um, you know, families who are really struggling and not knowing where to go or what to do when a, when a kid in their home has a mental illness. Um, and, you know, like you said, you know, I, I organized a, a conference a couple of years ago to start to address this, you know, a teen mental health conference for parents and teens. So yes, it's already been in the works. COVID is not the cause. It's one of the, you know, affecting factors, but it is not where the crisis began. Right. And, you know, one of the things about this thing that's happening on campus, one of the theories is that young people, when they were in high school, have had more parenting, more therapy. The parents have read more parenting books than any previous generation since recorded history, yep. meaning that we have more parenting courses and more marriage courses and more self-help books and more, and there's more of a focus. And this is the important part here, an anxious focus on kids. So this is parents worried that they're not living up to what they think, whatever people think about what a parent should do. Mm. And it extends past adolescence and kids aren't launching to become their own people. They are still fused to what I often will say uh, to my clients, you could be fused, you know, as a baby, you are, you know, if you're breastfed, you are fused to the teat, but you can also be fused to the financial teat when you're 26, you could be fused to the emotional teat. This would be an example of where a 26 year old wants to get married, speaks to their mother, the mother says, I'm not so sure it's a good idea. So the 26 year old goes, I don't think it's a good idea. Right. That they don't have their own sense of who I am. What are my thoughts? What am I? This? So you're fused. Yeah. And so this, this thing of fusion has been creating a lot of anxiety for young people to, to move past adolescence. And to the point where we, we've talked about this, there are some clinicians who would like to extend the definition of adolescence both earlier because women, uh, girls, teenage girls, tweens are menstruating earlier in this. So they want to extend adolescence both ways. They want adolescence to go to about 11-ish. Oh, 11, 12, and they want to extend it later to um, uh, early 20s, like 22, 23. And, I, and again, I, I just think this is moving the goalpost. I don't think this is, you know, helping anybody because nothing has really changed in terms of physiology, in particular for the, you know, 21, 22, 23 year olds. Um, right. It, you know, one could say it, it's an anxiety or immaturity problem or really a cultural problem because I'm not so sure this is true all over the world. I don't know if what's happening in our campuses in North America is happening in India, for example. I would wager to say probably not. I think this might be a Western phenomenon. We'd have to get more data. I don't have that data. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Although we do know, like, you know, when we talk about that quote unquote research, you know, the amorphous research claim. Um, but, you know, the research basically talking about how we understand now that there are certain parts of the brain that aren't fully developed until 21, you know, that, um, in fact, I remember, um, I remember speaking, uh, with your wife, asking her a question, you know, saying, you know, if there's met, there's mental health in my family, there's mental, sorry, everyone has mental health. There are mental wellness issues in my family. And, you know, with my kids, what are the things that I should be looking out for? And the one thing she said was, look, you can't really look out for something with kids. Lots of things manifest in different ways. She said, the one thing you can do though, is make sure that until their brains are at a certain level of development, like in their early twenties, just try to keep them off drugs because that can really trigger any dormant or underlying issues, which for me was such great advice because we don't treat drugs like that for teens, that for some kids, it should be off the table. 
because there are mental health issues in the family. And that was really eye-opening for me. So, so just in terms of understanding, yeah, there are developmental pieces to the brain where you want to give yourself the best shot possible. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I, I think, um, well, it's nice to know I married well, uh, that uh, my, my <laughs> wife gives advice that, that, that is, is It uh, was fantastic. Um, but, um, but I think that this idea, though, of what's happening on campus is a phenomenon of um, a fusion between parent and child and not a developmental thing. Right. Um, you know, uh, the couples in my office, the young couples in my office, when I say young, I'm talking about early to mid-30s many people on IVF, um, mm -hmm. people are prolonging getting married later. They're right. anxious about getting married. It, you know, Ellie, it's so fascinating because we come from a community where marriage and family is really central to so much of what we do. It is amazing if you, if you move outside of that bubble, what people think about marriage. It is amazing to me, the comments that I hear in my office. No judgment, by the way, but just okay. the general reaction about marriage. Like what? Give me an example. Oh, like, you know, like a genuine um, confusion about why would I do that? Yeah. Like what, what would be the, I really don't know what the point of that is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Having kids is something that they're interested in, but the marriage thing is just sort of, I don't, I don't understand why, like what, what benefit that is there for me? Now, I don't want to somebody who's questioning social constructs and <clears throat> don't have a spiritual basis for something like that, then certainly the question would be why marriage? Why would I get married? That doesn't really make any sense based on, you know, what, a, what my life is about and what I believe. I can see that. Yeah. Ellie, are you giving away free uh, Snickers bars? How, how do I, I notice that we have more people listening on today's thing <laughs> for the very movie that we have nothing to talk about. <laughs> I don't know what well, this is my cousin Vinny uh, has. Um, <clears throat> okay, so let's just talk very quickly here about this mental health thing. So where, where this is coming from, I mentioned to you before we started this call, I was speaking to a colleague of mine. He's a professor uh, in Alabama, and he's a family therapist, Kent Michael. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we were just talking about the most recent study in Las Vegas about the suicide rate amongst teenagers. I don't know if you saw it. It was in the New York Times. And the, we haven't seen the, the raw figures yet. I actually, Elisa has been looking into this. Um, my wife, who's a child psychiatrist, she hasn't been able to see the raw figures yet. We know that there was a, a jump in suicides in teenagers in, in, in Las Vegas in 2000, or Nevada in 2000, and I think it was 18 or 19. Eight, no, it was 2018, uh, uh, 19 dropped. And according to these figures, which they didn't share in the New York Times, it, it spiked in 2020. And they're saying it's because of mental health. And so the parents are uh, pressured the school boards to open the schools and have the kids come back in as a curative effect, basically cause and effect. Suicide is up. Schools are closed. That's the problem. Get the kids back in schools. And I guess they buckled under that pressure and let them in. We don't know the raw figures, so right. I, it, it's hard to talk about. But this is how we're talking about mental health these days. We're talking about this as a problem in the kids, right? Mm -hmm. It's in the kids right? Um, in a similar way that one might break a bone or strep throat or something like that. Um, and Kent's comment to me was, I have no idea what people talk about when they say mental health. And I don't think he was just being coy. I don't think he was being sort of like, you know, how therapists could be in terms of reverse psychology. I think he genuinely meant he does not understand, he does not know what people mean. And he's not even so sure people know what they think they mean right when they say mental health so let's just i thought let's just open this up a little bit here and by the way if anyone's listening live maybe pipe in if you were to define mental health and i don't know what mental unhealth or sick health <laughs> sick mental health or I, I don't know what you would call it right, right. so there's the mental health so the kids were mentally healthy whatever mm -hmm. that means pre-covid now they are mentally not healthy uh -huh. how would you define that what does mental health mean and what does mentally, I don't know, unwell mean? So look, I mean, I'm going to throw it in from my background, you know, uh, in, in terms of a particular perspective of um, healing and health, as well as, um, as well as coaching and also just as well as somebody who's um, has a spiritual perspective on things. Um, which is just a kind of a, a different perspective. So I would say when I talk about mental health and you and I have spoken about this, I think so often what we're talking about is crisis management. 
And I would say that mental health manifests exactly the same as physical health does, which is if you don't attend to your thoughts and feelings over long periods of time, eventually there will be some type of breakdown. So it's the same with our physical bodies. If we do not attend to our physical bodies, if we just eat junk, never exercise, don't sleep, um, you know, do things that, that basically leave those parts of our bodies totally unattended to, eventually something will break down. It is the same thing with, um, uh, it is the same thing with, with mental health. You have to attend to your thoughts and feelings. And if you don't, things are going to go awry. What does that mean? It means there's hope, which is if you do have a practice or a way of attending to your thoughts and feelings on a regular basis, you'll notice when there are fluctuations much earlier in the process, which means you can address it, right? What is the, the, you know, one of the worst things that happens with cancer is when you catch it so late that there's nothing you can do and you're off the rails. Where so often when you catch an illness like that early, there are multiple options to be able to heal and get better and, and address the problem. So that's yeah, it's, kind of it's where- like, it, It's like what we've talked about with marriage counseling. I always tell people, they'll right. say to me, I'm not so sure if I should see you right now because the truth is the problem is kind of resolved and maybe we'll come back when things are out of control. And I, I tell people that therapy actually is much less effective when you are in crisis. You've got, you've got an imp. Yeah, you've got a little, you. you've got Sorry. a, you've got One a cutie second. behind you. Keep talking. I'll be right there. Okay. Okay. Um, keep going. So, okay. So is there, oh, Ellie is going to, so I am going to, for those who are um, listening right now, I am going to share a couple of thoughts about uh, this interesting phrase we're using, uh, mental health and the kids aren't mentally well. In Vancouver, I wanted to use a, an idea that I was thinking about for Vancouver. In Vancouver, there's a lot of good sushi. It's cheap. It's a lot cheaper than Toronto. And uh, there's a lot of, um, what do you call that? Uh, All-you-can-eat sushi places in Vancouver. And so I would go with my friends and we would sit down and an all-you-can-eat sushi place would be, let's say, 24 bucks, but all you can eat. And you could sit there all night and eat sushi. And so we would sit there and we would order and we would order and, you know, you know, four Jewish guys free. You know, we think it's free. We just paid 25 bucks. We think it's free. We're going to stuff our faces and get every cent worth of this sushi. But there was always one of us who understood their limits, right? So they wouldn't eat till they got sick. But the rest of us did not understand those limits. We stopped eating when we eat somehow in our brains thought we got our $25 worth. So we, we would eat like, you know, $450 worth of sushi because you could. And we'd leave feeling horrible. Well, there's always one of us who didn't. They would stop. They had something within themselves that would stop. Okay. Um, and so it's the idea of too much of a good thing is too much of a good thing. Okay. And I think similar to this idea of a all-you-can-eat sushi bar, what we have here is a situation where COVID has created these lockdowns, these stay-at-home measures that have created too much of a good thing. Mm. Some people understand how to balance that. Some people, do. so I want to move this away. This is, this is what I think is very important, perhaps what Kent might be getting at. And if he listens to this podcast, I'll be speaking to him. Um, we're scheduled to speak in two weeks. So I'll see if he agrees with this. But I, I think that this might be, this is what's going on in families right now. Ellie, you and I have talked about uh, uh, this thing called two life forces. This is in family systems theory. It's the core part of family systems theory that uh, we have two life forces, <clears throat> the togetherness force. This is the baby to the breast without that sort of instinctual drive or this, uh, this, this thing that where the baby, if you've, if, for those of us who've had babies, when they're looking for the breast, their head does this funny, uh, uh, if you're not watching on video, they do this funny thing where they, they waggle their nose and they're like looking for something. They're looking for something and it's right. almost instinctual. Like they're looking for the breast and when they find it, they know. And if, if, if it's an elbow, they'll just <laughs> they'll suck on the elbow. You know, they latch right. onto the elbow. They call it, uh, they call it rooting. Rooting. Thank you. Rooting. Yeah. Exactly. Rooting. And that's the, that's what Dr. Bowen said is the togetherness force. And that force is an important part of survival because if the baby didn't have that, the mother would either have to teach the baby how to do that, but I don't know how you would teach a baby 
a newborn how to do that. It seems to be inbred with the baby. Mm -hmm. um, from a godly perspective, you know, one could say that that was just part of all the, you know, what's that prayer? Uh, uh, God, thank you for, it's the morning prayer. Thank you for my tubes and everything working. Right, the Asher Yatsar, right. That, yeah. That everything works the way that it's supposed to. And if one thing doesn't work, everything stops right. to work. It's a beautiful prayer um, yeah. if you get a chance to, to look at it. Very powerful prayer. And so the, the baby has this, this thing. Okay, so that continues throughout the rest of our lives. So as a teenager, the togetherness response, this, this instinctual drive happens with friendship. They are drawn together. They find comfort in their peers. They find, they find comfort in hanging out with their friends. There's a, another drive that goes in the opposite way that we don't talk about very much in our culture. And that is the drive for differentiation. Right. The ability for me to stand on my own two feet, have my own thoughts, my own feelings, while staying connected to people who I'm close to without compromising on my thinking and my feelings, that I don't lose my sense of self in the presence of those that I love. And if you think that's easy, then you don't understand the concept because it is a fact. And when I say a fact, I mean, I work with pretty sophisticated people in my practice, and they all, one degree or another, lose their sense of self in the presence of family. Now, what people will say is, you know, I feel more whole when I'm at work. Why is it when I go home, though, with my spouse and my kids, I, I, I bicker, I fight, I don't know what I stand for, but at work, I'm more I feel more cohesive. So that's the, that's an example of how we lose ourselves in the presence of our family. Or, you know, the idea, Ellie, where you take a plane, you go home to visit your parents and you're 42 years old, but you regress to a 40 year old and you're fighting with your mother like you were when you were a teenager. It's that, that kind of stuff. So, okay, so we have these two drives. One is togetherness and one is this idea called differentiation. COVID, what COVID is doing right now amongst many things, amongst many things. What COVID is doing right now, it's giving us an all-you-can-eat sushi bar of togetherness. Yeah. So you're taking all these people and say, we're going to give you a lot of good stuff now. You're going to get a lot of your mother and a lot of your father. And a lot of kids are saying, you know, I don't know if I want the tuna roll 75 times in the morning. Mm -hmm. It kind of makes me sick. It's but almost you know not a sushi bar. It's almost just a mainline hookup. <laughs> Like you're just, it's just IV of togetherness. That's, you don't even have a choice whether you can put it in your mouth or not. No, that, 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 that's exactly it. That's exactly it, um, Ellie. It's, um, it's constantly being fed in. And yeah. for those of us who are blessed and lucky to have a big home or a basement, you have a semblance of somewhere where you can go to find yourself, yeah. to find some time. But when you think about most people in North America, when you think most people are living in apartments, maybe a condo if you're lucky. Yep. Everybody is on top of each other. There's no coffee shops to go to. They're closed. There's no gym to go to. They're closed. And it's winter. And so it is inevitable. This is a money-back guarantee. It is inevitable. If you give people too much togetherness or the opposite life force, too much individuality or differentiation. An example right. would be, I take Ellie, I drop her on an island. Granted, I give you all your food, but you have no relationships. You have no communication. You have no phone, no cell phone. You might be okay for 10 minutes or 20 minutes, but if you want an example of too much of the other side of, of just being on your own with your own thoughts and feelings, watch Tom Hanks's, what was the film when he's, um, ship, uh, his UPS plane goes down and he's on an island and he makes friends with, with a volleyball? Do you remember oh, that film? Uh, yeah, it's um, shoot. What's that film called? Not Survivor. Um, I we'll can't remember. Well, well, maybe we'll Wilson, link to Wilson the podcast. Was the, was Wilson the was the friend. <laughs> do, 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 do you hear what I'm saying in terms of the yes. opposite of togetherness? The, Tom Hanks um, went, one could say, went clinically crazy. I mean, he was having, you know, I mean, it's a movie, but I've worked with psychosis in the past. It was very similar to some of my clients who have exhibited psychosis. When I'd be working with them, they'd be talking to a ball. Like they, they'd be in my office, they'd be looking at the corner and right. they would be speaking to Wilson. Okay. They, they, they would be doing it in the presence of me. I would watch them. It was really sort of interesting how the brain worked. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me. It makes me wonder if, you know, in each case, are we just simply trying to balance things out? You know, like, are we somehow trying to find connection if we don't have enough connection and find space if we don't have enough space? 
right? So <laughs> Okay, Ellie. Mind blown. No, it's so okay. interesting. You no, know, Ellie people na- naturally gravitate to try to balance things out. And, and and you know, interesting, we are gonna look at this movie today, which um, you know, when you look at movies from the eighties and nineties, I'm sort of seeing this across the board, and especially movies earlier than that. It was the pendulum swing of the opposite, which is kids should just be getting themselves organized and getting themselves out of the house and like getting a job and moving on. Um, And sort of the pendulum swung from the 50s and 60s where kids should be seen and not heard to, you know, absolute fusion where everything a child says is special and everything that they're doing, we should be paying attention to and lauding in some particular way. So- we have to come back to something you said, though, because okay. it is so we're not I'm not going to focus too much on this, but maybe on a different call. But I'm going to mention a book right now. I, I, I want to forewarn you. It, this is not an easy book. Okay. So um, it, 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 it was written for therapists. I think the guy who wrote it wrote it for the lay public. But <laughs> I mean, there, a good chunk of the book is neuroscience. And it's not my background. And I had okay. no idea what he was talking about. But there's a book called by Dr. Michael Kerr. He's a retired psychiatrist in the States. He trained with Murray Bowen. Um, he wrote a book called Bowen Family Secrets. And what he did is his brother, who had schizophrenia, committed suicide. And so he spent most of his life trying to understand his brother's suicide. So you have to imagine the guy's been practicing for 50 years, 60 years. I mean, the guy's in his, I think, 70s right now. Uh, one of the more well-known psychiatrists in, in the States in a certain area. So this book is his life's work in terms of understanding his family dynamics and schizophrenia and suicide. But while he was working on his brother, he started noticing similar things in other families in four, um, in different, in sort of, uh, um, how can I say this? He noticed similar dynamics, very different details, but similar dynamics in, in some other um, uh, incidents. And so he focuses on the book, his brother, um, Oh, Ellie, what's that uh, that horrible shooting in the States in the elementary school? Sandy Hook. Oh, Sa- oh, so he looks at the Sandy Hook, the kid who went to Sandy Hook. He looks at his family background. It's a fascinating book. And he looks at him. He looks at, um, uh, oh, one of the, uh, I think one of the individuals who shot one of the presidents. Anyways, he, he, so he goes through these families. And what you're saying right now, what you just said is something he focuses on in terms of what is the function of psychosis? Because really right, what you're are, saying are is, is there a function? Balance? Are we like pulling for individuation or are we pulling for um, connection unconsciously, like through some kind of acting out or behavior? That's So he addresses this, but he also brings on a lot of neuroscience. Mm. So if you like the brain stuff, so he combines family <laughs> systems theory with the neuroscience and he he talks about psychosis and hallucinations from something that you're, t- that's why I said mind blown, because mm-hmm. that is the seedling of where he goes with this. Anyways, if you're, wow. if you're prone to, if you want a, a an interesting read yeah, um, that. that is different than the typical fare, which is, well, you know, psychosis is a disease. And if you find the right, you know, antipsychotic, then, you know, I mean, we all know that it reduces the symptoms. It does not cure the problem. Right. This is a different understanding from a physician. So just to be clear, this is not, you know, we're not talking about some airy fairy, uh, you know, this is a physician with the, the most latest neuroscience and neuroplasticity about psychosis, schizophrenia. It's fascinating. Okay. The book is called um, Bowen Family Secrets by Dr. Michael Kerr. It was uh, published, I believe, uh, last year or the year before. Okay. Okay. I want to check let's, it out. I want to mention- Okay. Let's things. go on. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one thing is, so I think that's so interesting because the physical body also often tries to pull for balance, right? It will do what it can to sort of deal with something that's out of whack and often without our permission or without us understanding what's going on. Um, And I want to mention Jesse on Facebook basically said about defining mental health, it's better to describe it by describing what is mental unhealth, that often we describe like a state of angst or a state of distress, that's where we think about mental mental unhealth. And so the opposite of that, I guess, would be what mental health would be. Okay. Thank you. Kind of an interesting way of, of thinking about it also that we see it in the opposite. Yeah. Um, just back, Jesse just uh, tr- uh, um, reminded me of something that I didn't finish my thought, which I'm very prone to uh, to, <laughs> to, to doing. Um, so uh, just to, to wrap up uh, this idea here. So if uh, if my thesis is correct, and I, again, I'm I've only th- I've been thinking about this for the past 23 hours. Um, so this is an unfinished thought. 
then what I think what's happening in families is not a mental health problem in the kids. What's happening is our society is being is getting too much sushi in one way. We have too much too much all you can eat togetherness and we and all of our uh, uh, um, mechanisms to find oneself to find the space to have my own thoughts and feelings has been removed you are going to become symptomatic and we see this in the kids in terms of insomnia depression anxiety but it is a lie if we also didn't say that the parents are stressed too. This 100%. is not just a mental health thing in the kids. Yep. And by the way, it's the also not true doing all well. families. It is not true that all families are going through this in the same way. Right. Each family I work with, by the way, is going through this in a different way. Some families are doing better uh, yeah. than, uh, but most, I would say, in all fairness, most are buckling under the strain of this. If you take away the synagogues and you take away the churches and you take away the gyms, it's too much togetherness. And what Dr. Bowen observed is that when you have too much togetherness, people become symptomatic like a Passover Seder that goes on for five months. Right. So a Passover Seder, I, I've always find Passover Seders are nice for the first hour. By by hour two, I'm getting a little twitchy. By hour three, I'm telling Elisa, can we go home? So that's me. You might have a higher tolerance for a Passover Seder. But if you have a Passover Seder that goes on for six months, yeah, I don't care how good the, you know, matzah is okay it's you're going to get anxious and you're going to you're going to get twitchy so i think that's what's happening right now so when you hear parents saying open the schools open the schools and people say well that's a privilege that no this is a survival thing yeah and i also think you know open the schools open the schools for the kids Mm -hmm. is not really being truthful that many parents are saying open the schools open the schools for themselves as parents absolutely they're not coping well having everybody in the house and so i think there there's a certain amount of honesty that needs to be part of the conversation which is you know the family unit needs the support and that's i think also what we're seeing is that we have built a culture where we don't like you said we don't live in the same city as other parts of our family we don't really have support other than schools and schools or jccs or gyms or you know all of the places where we have community and without that community we're largely on our own dealing with a really difficult situation. And and I think it's true. People are, you know, I see as many parents struggling as I do kids. Yeah. And I think that's what's missing. No, thank you. Yeah, no. And so I think that's what's missing in this conversation. I think, you know, Ellie, I think sometimes, and this is really what, 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 um, what's that expression gets my, what's it when you get upset about something, it gets your What's, you know, if something gets your, you know, it's it gets goat? Me, it gets my goat. Thank you. It really gets my goat when, when we use the kids to, to, to push a political agenda. So I think what you're saying is very important. And by the way, I don't mean to suggest that when parents say, I want my kids in school because I want my space, that that isn't important. It is a life force. But I have to say, Ellie, if we're, you know, if we're going to talk about facts, a lot of the parents that I speak with, it's not that they want the space to watch Netflix because a lot of their kids are in their bedrooms doing school. I mean, some parents are struggling with this more, but there are parents who need to get back to work. Yeah. Like some parents, actually their offices are opening and they're saying, you got to be in. If you want to put a family under tremendous strain, lock down the schools, but open the offices right. and then tell parents, but you can't bring in nannies or other family members. Right. Okay. So, um, well, what are you going to do? And then you, then the assumption is, by the way, you're married. Well, a lot of families I work with, they're not. They're single parents. Right. So, so we are asking people. in the house, right, managing all of that. You know, uh, how do you get your groceries? We, we, we are asking people to do something that's been going on for so long. It is inevitable that people are going to get depressed, have panic attacks, anxiety attacks. Okay. And, and kids become symptomatic. And the adults do too. Right. Okay. So I think if we're going to, if we're going to be honest about this, I like your term. If we're going to be honest about this, whether it's to prepare other dynamics or to manage this one, we have to think of this as a systemic problem and not a mental health problem in the kids. Okay. That's my, that's my spiel. Okay. Okay. Let's, uh, let's use our last, uh, 25 minutes or so to talk about my cousin Vinny, which I do remember being really funny. It was actually quite, quite lovely to watch it again. Um, I do think it's a really funny movie. And Marissa Tomei won an Oscar for that role. She was great. I know that. She was, she was very good. So good. And my, I watched it actually with my daughter and she was like, oh my gosh, 
all of her clothes are so awesome. It's so 80s. I love it because <laughs> it's so in right now, you know? You like, found her clothes were 80s? Oh, yeah. Really? The big shoulder pads. Yeah, the big shoulder pads. The and shoulder like the pads for sure. And like the hair and, oh, yeah, totally. It was like, it was super fun. So you See, I think of Olivia Newton-John's outfits as 80s. I, I, I thought Marissa Tomei stuff was just like, you know, outlandish sort of like, I think they were trying to do the Italian kind of like gosh uh, sort of a thing. Yeah, like the jersey kind of, yeah. So she was like late 80s, early 90s, just, you know, kind of that kitschy sort of, sort of look. Yeah, she was amazing. And I actually thought, you know, so, you know, short overview, I'll do a quick on one foot. So my cousin Vinny is about two kids who are on a road trip, um, two teenagers, I guess they're in college, they're on a road trip. They end up in a very small town in Alabama, walk into a, a convenience store and uh, grab some supplies like food and stuff. One of them by accident puts a can of tuna in their coat and walks out and they get in their car and drive away. And he finds out like a mile later, oh my gosh, I forgot to pay for the can of tuna. Lo and behold, however, at the same time, just after they left, someone had come in and shot the clerk in the convenience store and murdered him and driven away. And they get arrested for the murder. And they don't realize that they're being arrested for a murder at first. They think they're being arrested for a can of tuna. And they're already like kind of in the stereotype, like, ooh, in Alabama, they're really serious about stealing a can of tuna. And don't understand, you know, hijinks ensue where, you know, they get thrown into jail and accused of murder and accessory to murder. So one of the, uh, Ralph Macchio actually plays the, one of the boys, he calls his mom, which I think this in itself is so wild. Um, he calls his mom and says, I need a, a lawyer. I'm being accused of murder. <laughs> and she sends his uncle or his cousin Vinny, who it took him six times to pass the bar exam and has never been in a courtroom in his life to defend her son in a murder case in Alabama. <laughs> like, that to me is just like, huh? But okay. And so Vinny comes down. He's very tough, very genuine, clearly smart and hardworking New Jersey uh, guy who really wants to be a great lawyer. And he comes with his wife, um, who's Marisa Tomei, who's also very smart, but very sort of street smart. Um, and a lot of the movie is their relationship. It's the relationship between you know his girlfriend who wants to get married and he's promised he'll marry her once he wins his first case. And the fact that if he doesn't win his first case, they're going to electrocute these two boys. So it's 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 a very like wild premise. My daughter was like, I don't understand. This is just totally crazy. Um, but uh, but I think there was some really beautiful pieces of the relationship. You know, there was a certain stress on family, where you know the Ralph Macchio's character kept defending his cousin, like saying he's he's family, like he's gonna do this. Don't worry, he'll pull it off. Like this deep deep trust in um in the importance of family um and then the relationship i think between the two of them was so interesting um so yeah that's the one foot i think what what was interesting for you in the film what did you like well i, I so here's a, a the a couple of thoughts well what, one in particular um what you just set up one of the main themes you just set up was you know this idea of and i think um i think Vinny says this uh Where's the question? Oh, right, right, right. So I think uh, it was either Vinny or uh, or Ralph Macchio, whatever his uh, uh, the name of his character in the film was. The question was, how did I get myself into this? Mm -hmm. I don't even remember the film. One of them said, I think it was the lawyer when he realized he was in too deep. How did I get myself yeah. into this? Yeah. So first of all, just a pro tip here. Whenever you find yourself in a situation, whatever your situation is, and you don't understand, it's a good question to sit there and wrestle with. Mm, yeah, okay. Because true. one way to ask yourself, one, one way to struggle with any sort of dilemma, relationship dilemma or dilemma you have is, you know, why are you doing this to me? So if, if my wife and I get into a fight, one question would be, why are you so mean to me? Or another version would be, why are you so selfish? Why are you so narcissistic? Why are you so... But a different question, and I think a question actually that that um, will give you a lot more purchase in, in making progress in any relationship would be, how did I get myself into this? It's a great question, actually, when you think about it. 
Okay. By the way, different than someone who's depressed who says, why am I so lousy? What is wrong with me? But how did I get myself into this? It's proactive. It means 100%. I- And it implies agency and power to change it. Exactly. Yeah. Because if you can figure out how you got yourself into this, A, you're going to find yourself in that same situation again down the road right. and B, you can do something about it. Okay. So this leads to this general idea. Um, that I would say, uh, I, I have heard, I forget who I heard this from, but sometimes if you have a lot of money and you donate to a hospital and someone in your family gets sick, at least in this, this is how it works in, in Canada or Toronto, you know, you can call up the president of the hospital and say, uh, my brother needs uh, gallbladder surgery or something. I want the best. I want the best. And so they go, okay, uh, what's the best? I want the chief. I want the chief surgical person. Now, often the chief is a political position, so they might not even be doing that much surgery, but they want the best. And what, if you ask any physician, what they'll say to you is that what you want in an OR is calm, people thinking. Mm. You don't want extra stuff finding its way into the OR to make people anxious and nervous. Mm. So what's interesting is when a surgeon goes into the operating room and the president of the hospital comes up and says, look, I just want you to know you're operating on so-and-so and they're a VIP right. patient, which will impact our funding. Right. It, 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 I don't know if studies have shown this, but this is anecdotal coming from physicians. The, the uh, prognosis for the surgery goes worse because the nurses and, the, and uh, all the support staff and the surgeons, right. they're operating at a heightened sense of anxiety. Mm -hmm. So the general rule is this, and this is true for therapists and lawyers in this. The reason why Vinny is not a good lawyer for his cousin and why he likely accepted it is because he's family. Yeah. It's yeah. because, because if it was a stranger who didn't know Vinny and he said, I'm uh, hey, Vinny, I hear you're, you know, I, I hear you're a lawyer. Uh, I was just charged with murder. Vinny would say, I'm not the right guy for you right. because he would have objective distance. There wouldn't yeah. be love there. Yeah. And here's the thing for parenting. Cause I was thinking like, I gotta find, I gotta find a tie in here with parenting. You know, <laughs> the problem with parenting, I shared this with you Ellie before when a parent says to me, Avram, you're so good with my teenager. Oh, I don't know how you got through them. I don't know. Share with me your magic. So I'm like, oh, okay, you want my magic? I'll share with you my magic. They think it's, you know, they think it's my postgraduate work and all my years of therapy. So I say, you want my, I'll share with you my magic. It might be a bit dis disappointing for you, but here's my magic. My magic is I don't love your kid. Right. I'm not their parent. I'm not. That's the, the, magic. The, the, the magic is, uh, and, and, and when I share with them, if they have a sense of humor is, and the magic doesn't work with my kids. <laughs> So you see, when it's my kids, because I love my three boys and I worry about my three boys, my magic, my great knowledge I've possessed over 30 years of doing this work doesn't work so well with my kids, <laughs> okay? So the problem here is that whenever we turn to family and we blur the boundaries, okay, and we ask for extra special attention or extra special up because of love, the outcome, now granted, this is a movie and all worked out, but if this is real life, and by the way, this does happen in real life, this could have gone very poorly for these two young men. Oh my gosh, the stakes were unbelievably high. And yeah. they keep saying throughout the film that Alabama executes people. And when they're in jail, they, they you know, the lights flash on and off every time they electrocute another, you know, another inmate. So you realize that death is imminent. Right. So essentially, you know, if your father or mother is a pediatrician, you don't want them diagnosing their kid or working with their kid because they will be more prone to anxiety and fear and they will look for things that likely either A, aren't there or they'll see things that aren't there that they don't do with their patients. I don't care how many degrees and how much training you have. You're just yeah. a human being. And so in Vinny's case, how he got himself into that is because he probably felt, you know, this sort of special role in his family as the only lawyer in his family or something. And he got caught up with the fusion part, the love and all that kind of stuff, and went into something he should have never gone into. And the only people who could see it is two people, his wife or his fiance, who the whole time was like, you don't know what the hell you're doing, do you? Are you sure you got this? Yeah, you don't, you know, and, and then she wasn't, she wasn't even pulling back. She was like, you are bleeping this up right, right? and um and uh, the friend uh, i guess the jewish guy rothstein yeah right who was like i don't know if your cousin knows what the hell he's doing here right. like this is not gonna go well right. so while i and hear he goes you, ahead and hires another lawyer like he's like mm, 
I think I'm going to save my own life. Which I have to say, by the way, it was a different time period, Ellie. I, you know, I know that in 2021, a comedian could never go up and make fun of stuttering. Because stuttering is a very, it's a very challenging thing. Like, I mean, you know, but I have to say one of the funniest scenes in the movie is when he stands up and, he, and he's spitting all over, he's, he's spitting all over the, uh, uh, what do they call the, ju- the, uh, the jury? That was one of the funniest scenes in the movie. Um so, so yeah, so I mean that I, I, there's a couple of others, but I'll, I'll let's open this up. So that, that was one of the main themes mm. for me is be careful of VIP situations when you're family. Yeah, I think that's so interesting too, because how often we will take on more than we can, you know, bite off more than we can chew because it's for our kids or because it's for our spouse or because it's for our sisters or because it's, you know, that we really will get ourselves in thick when really the best thing for everyone involved would be to outsource, you know, find an expert, find support, find someone else that, um, you know, look, I I know families who are struggling with intensely different, uh, difficult issues right now, who are so, you know, if we talk about mental health, they're so ashamed of what's happening in their family that they're not reaching out and trying to handle it themselves because it's their own kid that's struggling and to the detriment of everyone in the system. They're, the fact that it's family is clouding, you know, whereas if they were to look at any one of their other friends, they would say, you need help. You need to go get support. You need to find someone who knows what they're doing and you need to take the pressure off the system, but because it's their family, they can't do that. Um, and so I think that's a real challenge um, once you're in the parenting role. I mean, look, it's funny because the, the example I thought of was um, when it comes to VIPs, like when the stakes are high, I used to work in a really high end restaurant and I was a waitress and it was the same thing. When you got a VIP client that you knew could potentially tip you like a thousand bucks at the end of the night, the pressure was on right? Like you would do your best to like serve and and bring this person everything that they wanted. But the chances of you dropping something or forgetting something were exponentially higher because you were so pressured under those situations. And I think it's the same thing with our kids. We are so invested in the success of our kids that we're not thinking straight. We're often making decisions that are um, skewed by our worry rather than, um, you know, the best possible framework. Yeah, I, I, I want to share with you a quick little story that I heard from a psychoanalyst. Um, I forget the guy, but he was a famous, famous psychoanalyst in the States. I forget his name, though. It, it'll come back to me um, what type of psychoanalyst he was, but he was very well known. Uh, uh, he was on the news a lot and, and, and wrote a lot of books. And so a Texas oilman uh, heard about this guy, was going through a tough time sent him a, a message saying, um, uh, I hear you're the best. Uh, I can afford to fly down on my private jet and see you. This is a true story, by the way. So uh, so this guy, Jewish guy, maybe he's five foot two, five foot three. You know, you're a European Jew, right? They've never seen each other. So I, I guess the guy said, uh, sure, come, you know, if you can fly down, I have an appointment on Wednesday at three. Sure. So the Texas guy who's six, eight, you know, you know, cowboy hat, like the whole, an oil man, right? Right. So he flies down, sitting in the waiting room, and opens the door. This you know balding Jewish, five foot two, very not impressive looking guy. And for a moment, they look at each other. And the oil man's <laughs> looking at this little guy, and the psychoanalyst looks at him. This is the brilliance of this guy. And he looks at the oil man. And he goes, "Come in anyway." <laughs> like like. The brilliance of that, you know, for him to catch in the moment that he could see in the oil man's eyes, the disappointment that there's no special treatment. You're just a little man. And he looks at me, goes, come in anyway. I thought it was just a great little story about this idea of VIP, because the VIP thing impacts both people. You know, the, the, the brilliance of the psychoanalyst was to to recognize it and not try to overplay. Look at my degrees. Look at to try to match the expectations, yeah. but he, de- he he brought it down to say, well, look, you know, I'm just a human being coming in. They probably actually had a great session because of that. Right. It would have gone south if he tried to play himself up as some, you know. Right. Anyways, right. okay. Um, by the way, we probably have time because I really have to end on time today. Um, okay. We probably have time for one more. Is there something that for you that stood out that you wanted to uh, touch on? 
Um, I think, like I said, I really thought that the relationship between um, Vinny and Marisa Tomei were, were, was so interesting. I thought that, you know, on one hand, it was very sort of, you know, brash and, you know, rough and very New Jersey. But there was also this really beautiful support, I thought, between the two of them, a, a real honoring and a real support. And um, you know, I thought it was interesting, you know, if, look, if we're talking about parenting, we're also talking about marriage and relationships, you know, For I sure. think that, you know, when she kept saying to him, can I help you? Can I help you? I want to help you. And he kept saying like, because he was frustrated, no, 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 no. And of course she ends up having, you know, the, the keystone photograph that turns the whole trial around. And I think that it was so interesting, you know, what happens in relationships where one person is totally stressed out and the other person is trying to help in some way, but there just keeps being these missed communications um, across the lines. And, and so what do we do when both people or one person in particular is super, super stressed and the other person in the relationship just doesn't know what to do. They don't know how to help and, and how that then manifests in fights and anxiety and cut off or, you know, all of those kinds of things. So what do we, how do we calm a situation down in the house or in the relationship when one person is genuinely overwhelmed, but doesn't know how to ask for support? Yeah. I, I mean, um, it's hard to know exactly what was going on there. It's a movie, so you 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 don't know the the backdrop. Right. But, um, uh, I think that what I have noticed in my office and in my own marriage um, is that often the help that I'm trying to give my spouse is coming from my own internal anxiety of watching right. her. Yeah, it's not coming from a it's not coming from a principled place. So what I mean is, right. if I see my partner is really upset or stressed at work, and I'm like, let me help you organize your papers. A, she didn't ask for that. And B, it's because I'm catching her anxiety. That's the fusion part about marriage. So what I often see in my office is the persons in my office, in this case, it would be uh, Maria Tomei, right? Saying, my partner's so thick-headed. He doesn't take my advice. He doesn't listen to me. Uh, and that's why he gets himself in these problems and stuff. So there's, <laughs> and my so, biological clock is ticking. <laughs> you just touched on something else I was just going to get to, actually. Right. That's a very important point. <laughs> Actually, it's so important that we really don't have time to do it justice, but I'll just a quick idea. You know, what often happens in our marriages is this. We can't work on this thing, right? Because it's too, of a, it's too much of a hot potato. And so what are the hot potatoes in marriage? Finances, mm -hmm. sex, mm -hmm. some spiritual stuff, um, generally some combination of how much closeness does one partner want and how much distance does one partner want? It's that life force thing in all those areas, right. sex, religion, uh, parenting. So it's that tension. It's that tension between the, the, uh, the, the, um, the negotiating of the, that stuff. So what happens often is there's a big issue in this case in the film, it's having uh, getting married and having a baby. Her frustration is that you can see it when she explodes. By the way, that's very realistic. That happens in my office quite a bit. Right. The, the frustration is that it's never a good time to talk to you about this because whenever you think about having a baby, you get so anxious, you distance. Whenever I get anxious, I pursue you. Mm -hmm. And it's the Harriet Lerner idea that you get stuck in that dance of distancing and pursuing. Now, one could ask, I don't know if you're thinking about this, Ellie, but what gets asked to me is, what do you do if your partner keeps pursuing on having a kid and you keep distancing? How do you break the dance? So mm -hmm. interesting question. Perhaps we will leave it as a cliffhanger. We could tackle the pursuing distance <laughs> and dance. But let's just come back to this film. So what happens is, when you can't tackle the pink elephant in the room, you start to deal with the lower hanging fruit. That's where you have people coming in arguing about, you had to buy the most expensive toothpaste. Why would you buy the most? So what you're doing is you're, you're sublimating energy from over here, the real thing that you can't find purchase on, and you start focusing on the nitty gritty of something else that really isn't that significant, but at least it's a way of connecting with your partner. So meaning so, like, if you can't talk about the issue of wanting to have a kid, then you start to nitpick or, you know, get into the nitty gritty of why do you leave the dishes out? Why do you do this? Why do you do that? And try to 
resolve those things because you can't resolve the actual thing that that is causing the anxiety. Is that what you mean? Yeah, and also there's residual anger. So what happens is you're walking around, you're really angry about like, so she's walking around thinking he's never going to marry me or I'll always be single, whatever her fantasies are, whatever her fears are. She can't resolve that. So either she's going to try to be super helpful to him in other areas as a way of connecting. Remember, we need to connect and we need right. space. So she's either going to try to really help him. He's going to distance from that because he, he, he doesn't feel competent as a lawyer if his non-lawyer fiance helps him, right? So we can go, I mean, Ellie, we can go on this. And I mean, it's a, it, this is a very common dynamic in marriage. But what I would say is, because you asked the question, I want to answer that question. Generally, and this is true for kids and it's true for adults, when you are too um, anxious or worked up about something, the most loving thing we can do for people is to get out of their way. And this is very important if you're prone to violence, because the couples in my office who are not aggressive by nature, but get into physical fights right. is because they, one, the two people don't know how to, they both can't disengage. So they think that, no, we're going to talk about this right now. And the other person goes, I don't want to talk about it right now. Oh, no, well, I'm not leaving it. Right. And then the tension builds and builds. And then people do what animals do. When you're cornered, you, you will push back. You will yeah. do this. And then now you're into a whole weird area where someone can trip and fall and break an right. arm and the police get called. And now it's a whole mess. So right. generally what I tell people is if you have a teenager and they just failed, they got a bad grade and, and you say, we need to talk about this. And they say, no. And you pursue them. Only bad things are going to happen now. You have to use what the old mindfulness teachers have always said, right. bring down your blood pressure, yeah. breathe, go for a walk, center yourself, ask yourself, worst case scenario, if I don't deal with this now, what happens? Mm. Right. Okay. So Melissa Torme, so if you don't have a baby today, what happens? Right. Well, really nothing. What about tomorrow? Well, really nothing. What about five years? Well, now we're talking. Okay. But it doesn't have to happen now. Right. Okay. Or another one is... She's pursuing her husband, her fiance is saying, you have to do X, Y, and Z to win this case. Okay, but he's not listening to you. So what if you keep doubling down on that? Well, you're probably going to get double of what he's doing, which is more distancing. Right. The most loving thing that we could do is what Sting said in his famous song, if you love someone, you set them free. Or as we said last podcast, what Howard Jones has said in his right. song, what is love? Maybe the best, uh, it's something about uh, maybe the best love is about letting people be who they need to be. Right. And if that means that this guy as a lawyer has to stumble his way through finding his footing, right? You now, do I think it is, uh, do I think it is helpful for one spouse to turn to another spouse or a teenager and say, um, would you like some help with that? Or what would be of assistance to you right now? You know, a lot of spouses will say to me, I don't want his advice. I don't want him doing it for me. I really would like a foot rub. That's what I would like. Right. So, but what you you're know? saying is then the step even before that is we have to calm ourselves down. We have to calm ourselves down. And hopefully when we calm ourselves down, the whole system starts to recognize, okay, everyone can calm down. Well, first of all, you don't have to hope, Ellie. You don't have to hope that that, that, that is something you can factually observe. If right. you can, if you can lower your pursuit of your spouse in some way and lower your anxiety the kids will become less symptomatic this isn't right. um this isn't um psychoanalytic esoteric psychobabble you can right. observe it you can see right. it happen in the house okay so you know um the first thing is as you notice in your as john gottman the the marriage researcher has said um okay we'll go over just a little bit and whatever it's my clinical supervision so she can okay wait. Uh, I, i'm paying for it so, two minutes um, and then we'll go um so uh um, as John Gottman has said about marriage, um, what he noticed is that when he, in his, in his love lab, he calls it, uh, he would uh, measure spouses' heart rates. And I forget what it was. I think it was 100 beats per minute. But if, you're, if your rate goes above 100 beats per minute for most couples, it means you're, you're not thinking anymore right. and you're into a fight-flight thing. That's right. So he would have couples wear these heart monitors. And he would say to people that if you're arguing about buying a house, selling a house, having another kid, whatever and your heart rate goes past 100, you have to disengage. And he would train people to go for a walk. Wow. Look wow. at your heart rate, go to your watch, look at your heart and come back. You can, you can Google this, by the way, heart rate, John Gottman. So smart. I think it's an, an interesting, even with- It's a biofeedback measure. It's a yeah, biofeedback really cool. measure, you know, which is a lot more helpful and granular than saying to people, go calm down. Cause that's right. like, well, what does that mean? Calm down. You know, like, I don't even know what that means. Right. Like go drop your heart rate below this. Yeah. 
And then you'll be in problem solving mode, not in just stress. Oh, so yeah. it's such a great tip. I love that. Yeah, you, you can go online. You can read about this. Now, look, this is a lot easier said than done. Right. <laughs> okay. It's, you know, let's be let's be clear. You go, you get your heart rate down, you come in, you look at your, your spouse's punum, their face, and your heart rate jumps up to 110. <laughs> so you have to, like, let's get clear here. This is not... This is this is really hard stuff, but right. but what choices do we have? Right. So while I agree that she was helpful to him and it's a movie and it plays out nicely, what I see in my office is that often spouses are in pursuit of each other on an issue that is not the real issue and that in therapy anyways, it takes a while to get to the real, real issue um, and then the work begins. So that's what generally I see. Okay, that's... Amazing. Look, look how much we got out of my cousin. I, this is one of, you know, what, Ellie, the funny thing is between the movie and the, the, the first part of the mental health discussion, <laughs> all this kind of stuff. This has been one of my favorite episodes, which I did not see happening at the beginning. Go wild. Amazing. This. Me too. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Amazing. We'll figure out our, our next movie during the week sometime. We are still taking recommendations. Please, anyone watching or listening, please send us. Send us a movie that you love. Send us a movie you want to hear us talk about. Um, listen for the podcast. Um, like us, subscribe, and share it. And we will see everyone next week. Thanks, Avram. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.